broadcasting around the world. Around the world. You're listening to the Mike Drop Club. Hosted by Douglas Hamandiche. Message received. Message received. You do not need to know what you need. What you need. Just engage with the podcast feed. Just engage with the podcast feed. Providing weekly insights into cool stuff we've read, saw, did, or heard about what made us say, wow, eureka, damn, nothing is off limits. If it motivates and inspires you to reach your goals, then it shall be discussed. Featuring guest interviews from high performers and people of influence and weekly awards for the best mic drop moment. This podcast is guaranteed to leave you pumped up for the week ahead. Don't just live life, make life boom. How you guys doing out there? Welcome to another episode of the Mic Drop Club with your host Douglas Hammond Dishay. And today is a follow-up conversation with the one and only Ian Binks, who dropped in on the show a couple of weeks back and dropped some gems in regards to um, how we can manage healthcare more effectively and we, the approach was are we delivering healthcare or is it more to do with sick care and in that conversation um, he broke down some of the challenges and what it, what does it mean to give back clinical time when we do these transformation programs but to the end of this show he did touch upon a very salient um, piece of information he did distill that we have an issue in regards to noise levels in hospitals that is not often discussed. So um, Ian's um, gladly, um, I'm very glad, has joined us again to really pick up on that point about the noise levels within hospitals. So that being said, I think it's the right time to bring Ian back into the fold for this conversation. Ian, how are you doing? Um, very well, thank you, Douglas. Thanks very much for inviting me back. It's uh, it's it's great to be here again. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure. The pleasure's all ours. I can assure you of that. And I was just trying to break down in the intro that um, your previous conversation did stimulate a lot of useful discussions amongst health informaticians and clinicians in terms of the whole healthcare um, space and how we're adding real value. In, in, in that environment to liberate patients as it were. So how are you? How's your week been? Yeah, yeah, really good. Um very busy, you know, starting to get back out and uh into hospitals, seeing seeing our clients again, which is is a surreal experience, you know, queuing up outside a hospital with your masks on waiting to get in. It's it, it's still a different world out there. But it's it's good to see that people are are still kind of really embracing this this wave of of uh, innovation yes. that, that kicked off with the, the COVID-19 thing and, and people are looking to push to the next level. So yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. Yeah. And, and we were saying that obviously it's, it's it, transformation didn't, should never have required such a um, horrifying pandemic yeah. to stimulate some of those discussions, but we have to take this as an opportunity to drive the health transformation agenda forward for the betterment of of humanity for the to liberate patients to deliver better more effective care because the things are never going to be the same again when it comes to um yeah. the, the delivery of health true true yeah yeah and and we've got to make sure that we take this we take this on um 
and use it for good, right? Uh, you know, it's been a bad thing that's happened. It's been a terrible thing that's happened. And, and it's, it's, it's worrying that that's the trigger point for, for people to, to actually embrace technology in the right way and be a bit more agile about how they do it. But it's an opportunity for us to, to make things a bit better. Yeah, exa- exactly. So in terms of the noise, the noise levels, um, yeah. you're, you're, you're somebody that is um, very close um, to to that subject in, in terms of um, the device management type solutions in hospitals. So you've seen firsthand the noise levels. Can you just share a bit of information about what you mean by that? Yeah. So noise levels in, in hospitals and particularly in the, in, in the really high acuity critical care areas, that's kind of a, a, you know, a pet peeve of mine and a real interesting point that, that um, I'm very focused on. You know, it's a well-established problem that there's too much noise, um, especially in ICU. There's been a lot of studies over the years that, um, you know, brought back varying results, but really they, they all, they all point to the fact that that consistency consistently noise levels are around 20 decibels above the, the WHO recommended maximum, which is, um, 45 decibels during the day and 35 at night. Um, so consistent levels are, are pretty much 20 decibels above that. And the peaks are regularly above 90, 95 decibels. So really, you know, this brings two particular problems, which I want to talk about today. Um, one problem is, is the issue of acoustic stress, which is where the noise levels are are consistency, consistently too loud for people in their comfortable zone. And that starts to impair function. Um, so it can be things like sleep deprivation. It can be things like impairing your ability to consume information, um, impairing your ability to communicate properly and increasing stress. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of subcategory problems under that, which we'll get into. And then the other problem is, um, the issue of, of what we call alarm fatigue. So, Obviously, a big part of the noise problem is the medical device alarms. There's a lot of medical devices in critical care. And at the moment, they're all on audible alarms. Uh, Different ones go off at different times. They've all got different sounds. They're all pretty loud. And there's a reason for that. You have to hear them. If an alarm's going off on a medical device in critical care, it means there's something you need to do. Because these devices are either giving you real-time information about the physiological condition of a patient and if that changes you need to know or they're even actually supporting the, the critical functions of a patient in, in in you know in the world of a pulmonary ventilator or a dialysis machine so if there's something going wrong you've got to hear about it and you've got to get that so the alarms are loud but there's a lot of them mm-hmm. and you get this concept of alarm fatigue which is when you're in an area with lots of alarms day in, day out, and you're doing 12-hour shifts, you start to tune them out because your body just does that naturally. So um, think about it like this. When you wake up in the morning uh, and you're about to go out and you put your watch on, the moment you do that, you feel your watch. You know it's there, but you can feel the weight of it. You can feel that it's different to your other hand. Um, After a few minutes, you don't even notice that it's there. It's just part of you because your body's become accustomed to it. It knows it's not going anywhere and it just kind of tunes out that, that feedback that you're getting. And I've had it when I forget to put my watch on and I walk down the street and I constantly check my wrist and there's nothing there because my body's not telling me that my watch isn't there because, you know, there's no feedback and you get the same thing with alarms. And that is fundamentally a serious issue in terms of patient safety, because as I've said, medical devices are alarming for a reason. 
um, consistent, consistently one of the highest um, hazards in technology is missed ventilator alarms because ventilator alarms are really, really serious. You know, um, and if you miss those, even a few seconds can can be fundamentally really damaging to the patient. So you need to get to the point where you, you're not fatigued by the alarms anymore. And there's ways to do that. And we can get into that in the conversation. There's a lot sure, we can do sure. right now. Sure. And that's very interesting because I I understand exactly where you're coming from. I've spent a lot of times in even in a busy any departments doing a night shift and coming back home, struggling to get to sleep and um, yeah. coming to realize that it's this, this constant beeping sound that is really affecting my ability to to rest. Um, yeah. I, I would I would say also that when we do get immune to alarms as clinicians, obviously the the effects are very um, detrimental. You potentially put in the patient care, um, you're compromising care, patients' care because of yeah. sounds that you are tuning out of or overly tuning into. I, I would say. Um, incidentally, we never really had a hearing test. I know the NHS gives free eye tests. I'm not mm. too sure if they do audio tests because we make the assumption that everybody's hearing is is of a certain standard, I guess. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point because I've never heard of, of that either, kind of mandatory or, or, or um you know, complementary hearing tests periodically or whatever. But, you know, that's another point is the constant acoustic stress damages hearing. Yeah. It does consistently damage hearing. So, um, you know, if you don't solve the problem, then really you at least ought to be checking if your clinician's hearing is, is getting worse or not. Sure. And your nurses, because these people are exposed to, to serious, um, serious acoustic pressure. Yeah, for long periods of time. Exactly, and it's not in isolation. <laughs> it's not in yeah. isolation. It's because, as we discussed in the previous show, the, the sound, the, the the environment that we operate in is very noisy. It's a very busy environment. So, outside of the beeps, the chirps, and all the other kind of stuff, you got actual environmental noise. Yeah, you yeah. could have cars going by. You could have um, people talking, people crying. Yeah. You know. Uh, all these things constantly, and you you might be forced to re, to respond to some of these things in and amongst the beeps and the chirps. So it's not in isolation. So sometimes I think people could take for granted when they manufacture some of these devices. So look, that that beep is is loud enough for you to know there's a problem. However, yeah. if somebody's in the other ear talking to you about an assessment result. You, you're consciously thinking about what to say to a loved one, a carer for regarding a patient in another bed. You know, you're thinking mm. about all these things. It's very hard for the human being to then prioritize or discern um, what is the, the right um, response for each of these things simultaneously. We can only do one thing consciously, effectively yeah. at a time. I know some people will argue that you can multitask, but I can, <laughs> I would. Yeah. But fundamentally, I mean, humans aren't aren't great at multitasking, uh, you know, because each individual moment you have to be focused on what you're trying to do, especially in a clinical environment. And verbal communication that you brought up, that's a really important factor in in the the whole acoustic stress world in that um, 
we've all been in this situation, right, where you're at a party or you're in a bar or something like that, and you start off having a, a nice, quiet conversation with the person that you're with, and it's at a nice level, and you can hear each other and yeah. you can talk normally. But as more people start talking around you, the sound levels go up. Somebody behind the bar turns the music up a little bit because the talking's getting too loud. So now the music's louder. Now the talking gets louder. Before you know it, you're yelling in each other's ears just to be heard. You're getting hoarse in your throat and you're, you know, you can't really hear the other person. And this is what it's like on a critical care area. Okay. Not to the levels of a nightclub, but it's, it's bad. It, it forces people to communicate in, in difficult ways where they have to kind of shout or raise their voice quite, quite high to be heard. And there's two problems with that. One is confidentiality. You're talking about, you know, sensitive patient information and you shouldn't be shouting it. You shouldn't right. have to shout yeah, it correct. to each other. Correct. And the other is that, you know, it's this Lombard effect. As, you, as, as all the time you increase the noise, you have to increase the, the volume of your speech, which increases the ambient noise, which means you increase the volume of your speech even more. And it self-perpetuates. So you need to get to a point where you can minimize the ambient noise, which is causing the loud communication in the first place. And that stops the Lombard effect straight away. Plus, you've got to find better ways to communicate. Sometimes verbal communication is not necessary. You can have things like secure instant messaging and it needs to be secure. I mean, it can't be something like WhatsApp because this is, again, patient sensitive information that we're, we're talking about. So it should be centered around a patient and it should be hosted within the, the, the hospital data network as opposed to going out to a cloud or, or, or somewhere else. Um, but it should be the ability to just message each other with information that's about a patient. If you need to find somebody to talk about a patient, the on-call consultant or somebody like that, you shouldn't be shouting across the unit saying, does anybody know where, where Dr. Robson is? You know, you should be able to speak to them directly with a, a mobile handset, wireless communication. Right? These things are important. You know, looking at the way we communicate, can have a serious, serious effect on the noise levels, but there's a lot of problems and there's a lot of a lot of solutions. Yeah, ex exactly. And um, some some of the problems we have are just based upon the the, the new modern ways um, hospitals are built and constructed. I'm not too yeah. sure in terms of how how robust they are at repe repelling or containing sound within a particular environment, opposed yeah. to the older hospitals which, which had thicker walls um, constructed in a far more um, robust and ruggedized way. You know, I'm not too yeah. sure. There, I think some work needs to be done about that. But certainly if you're going to build uh, a hospital and uh, the primary building materials, MDF, you know, surrounded by plastic, it's not the best for containing those acoustics. Sometimes maybe we're even amplifying some of those sounds that don't need to be there. And you raise an inter interesting point around the confidentiality piece. It's one that, again, people don't really understand. And unless you've been a patient and you're lying there, horizontal, gauging at the ceiling, maybe close, maybe tithering on the, on the, on, on the edge of consciousness, and you're hearing people shouting, Clinicians mm. shouting your personal information. It's not one yeah. that will um, put you in a situation of feeling more confident that you're going to be delivering, be receiving the right level of care when people yeah. are shouting yeah, things that are personal it, it, to you. It, it, it's un, it's uncomfortable and it's worrying to patients, isn't it? You know, yeah. um, 
you're, you're hearing people just kind of very loudly talking about some of the most sensitive information about you. And, and to them, it's just, it's the day job. Like yeah. They're doing their job. But to you, as somebody who's not always in that environment because you're a patient, it's a really weird feeling, I think. Um, and and uh, honestly, there's such easy ways of mitigating that. Yeah. There really are. Yeah. This, is, this is not redesigning a hospital. This is not implementing an incredibly complicated digital solution. This is thinking about how we communicate. And those tools are out there. Yeah, exactly. As a, those tools, communication, again, is one whereby... If you send a message, an alert, the way you measure the success of that alert is the response to yeah. that alert. Same way yeah. as we're talking today, if I speak and you're not interpreting with the spirit of which I intend uh, and the content of the message and the way I deliver it to you, I would say it's poor communication or miscommunication. You have yeah. not grasped what I'm talking about. It's the same thing we have with alerts. If alerts are on a hierarchy, for example, based upon um, level of severity, and somebody cannot discern the level of severity based upon not being able to be attuned to the sound of the beep, you know, yeah. care is going to be compromised. So the communication piece, I'm fully with you and making sure that we have the right level of technology so that the communication becomes far more um, seamless as Simon Belusov, who I spoke to yesterday for for another show, he was talking about removing friction, removing mm-hmm. the amount of friction. And I think this is also to do with that. If you can remove the friction for you to communicate to the right person, because yeah. the days of just having a pager, as um, Matt Hancock is trying to prescribe, you know, but they'll, they'll realize that as a contingency plan, you need to have a backup in any, any case scenario. But if you're sending a, a like literally a, a broadcast help yeah. and yeah. not being able to prioritize <laughs> who is supposed to be responding to that cry for help or assistance, ensuring that the right person with the right skill set is responding to that cry for help yeah. and having yeah. so, and, and it's transparent and there's accountability that they are, are coming all of those things, I think, needs to be explored with technology to move the conversation. Yeah, and, and honestly, you know, we have the technology for this. We do. We've got the ability to, you know, build uh, cascaded critical alerting, which goes to the right people. So, you know, when we're talking about the mobile handsets that, that people can walk around and talk to each other on, like live wireless telephony and, and use clinical applications on, they can also have a button on there, which is, a you know, an emergency button, which dependent on their role can be configured in different ways. But if I'm a nurse on critical care and, you know, I'm looking after one patient because it's one-to-one care and that patient, let's say they aspirate a mucus plug and they start to choke. That's a critical situation. If I can just, instead of shouting, yelling, help, help, help somebody come here, you know, which is often the way it happens. I can press a button on my mobile device and I can get on with looking after the patient. And I know that alerts cascaded to the people who need to see it yeah and they are responding and they're coming and it can even open up a a call so that i can hear them on the speaker on my device i can hear that they're talking to me and they're saying they're coming these are are, again simple solutions which exist and when you talked about the alarms um the ability to prioritize what we're hearing that's a really important point because medical device alarms yes they make different sounds dependent on what they are 
but you've got to know really the device and you've got to know the different types of pitches and noises that it makes. And is that a ventilator or is that a, a, a patient monitor or is that an infusion pump that I'm hearing going off? Um, and again, you, you get to this level of it's got to be noisy because we've got to make sure people hear it. But we also have the technology to take those medical device alarms out of the devices, all of them, and then put them into one, a clinical dashboard, which gives visual alerts of the alarms on every patient. So we can see if it's red, it's high priority. If it's amber, it's medium priority. If it's blue, it's low priority. And we can see every patient that's alerting and which device is going off. But also pass those, those alerts to a mobile device to the person appropriate to deal with that. So not to everybody. We're not spamming everyone with these alerts and the noise. It's going to the primary nurse for that patient. Or if it's a really critical alert, like an asystole or something like that, then it can go to more people because we know that you're going to have to get a crew around that patient to deal with them. Sure, you're talking That's about the targeting. You're talking about the yeah, targeting. Tar- exactly. You, you don't spam the whole unit with the alert. Not everybody's interested in, in the noise that's coming off bed one. Okay. The patient who's looking after bed one is interested. And if it's a really critical alert, a number of other people are interested, but not everybody on the unit. And certainly none of the patients, they don't care. They want to go to sleep. So you can target the alerts to the right people. You can see that they're picking them up. You, it, it speeds up the time that they respond because they get it in their hand and they can see exactly what it is. So if I see it's a ventilator alarm, it's a peak low on the ventilator, and they're going to get there quickly. If I can see it's an end of infusion alarm, the infusion's going to end in five minutes. I've got five minutes to get to the patient. You know? So sort my time out. But even just doing that give, with, with um, statistical reporting out of it gives units the ability to, to isolate nu- nuisance alarms. So nuisance alarms are really interesting because you get a lot of that in ICU. And this is noise that could be immediately eradicated. Let's say I've got a patient who's got COPD and I get them in a bed. Um, and they've got some other conditions that we're dealing with, but they've got COPD and they're going to have that for, for the rest of their life. Right. So I've got them on a patient monitor and the patient monitor is set to the normal ranges for alerting. So every couple of minutes, it's alerting me that the patient's oxygen saturation is too low because the lower range on the monitor is 90. Yeah. So it says if it's below 90, alert. Right. So I get an alert at low SpO2 constantly because the patient's SpO2 is never going to get there. Yeah, exactly. It's in the exactly. 85, maybe 88, you know, even lower potentially. And it's not going to get higher. So why am I being alerted to that? Because I know this patient's got COPD. So do you know what the nurse does? The nurse clears the alarm. Patients got low SpO2, but they've got COPD. Clear the alarm, clear the alarm, clear the alarm. But it will keep going off. And what we find units are able to do when they get clear statistics of the alarms that they get is they do reviews at handover and they say, okay, we got 400 low SpO2 alerts on this patient yesterday. You know, why? Because the parameters weren't set properly. So you need to set the parameters right to what's normal for that patient. Exactly. So, so if I've got somebody in critical care who normally runs marathons once a week and their resting heart rate's 55, I don't want the lower range at 60 because I'll get bradycardia alerts constantly. And this is the point is not everybody's the same. That's why monitors have the ability to set ranges. But if you don't have the statistics that are telling you how many nuisance alarms you're getting, it's quite difficult to do that educational piece. And I've seen it. I've seen reductions of 40, 50% of the, the, um, 
number of alarms and again 50 or 60 percent of the duration of alarms by using the systems that push the alerts to mobile devices and give you the statistics and that's really that's a huge change in the noise yeah, that, that's brilliant and I, and I guess it enables the clinicians to be more on the front foot in the delivery yeah. of care be able to be more proactive as you rightfully yeah. said set the right parameters on these devices to be attuned to the individual yeah. requirements of the patient. Whereas at the moment, it's more generic. And yeah. there's, a, there's a sense of helplessness amongst clinicians to, in terms of what they can do with the noise. They do feel this is just the environment. This is the way it's always yeah. been, as you rightfully said in the, in the previous podcast, and this is the way it's always going to be. Yeah, but, and it's just like suck it up and, yeah. and, and work in that environment. And it, you really don't have to. And, and we're not talking about technology that hasn't been invented yet this stuff's around and, and there's a danger, you know, that if you don't start dealing with these nuisance alarms, you get into this robotic autopilot mindset of clearing alarms on a patient because you know that this patient's alarm is constantly going off. Mm. And there really is, a, you know, a huge danger that you clear the one that you really should have paid attention to sure. because you're stressed at the time. Something else is going on. Another alarm's gone off in this patient is similar to the last one. You don't notice the difference and you clear it. And that patient deteriorates and there's something bad going on with them. And it's, it's not the fault of the nurses and the doctors who are clearing the alarms. It's, it's a fault in the system, in how they are expected to work. And we really can change this. Um, I mean, fundamentally, it would be possible to get to the point of actually being able to operate medical devices on a silent mode. You know, when we take this, this concept of, of distributing the alarms, you know, we have the technology now to collect all of the alarms from all of the medical devices. And we have the technology to provide a technical confirmation back to the medical device that we've received and distributed the alarm effectively. Now, fundamentally, what that means is it's a secure system. That means we know that 100% of the alarms that come out of the medical device have been received and distributed in the correct manner to the correct people. Now, what that could mean is you could operate that medical device in, in silent mode, but right now you can't because the medical devices are not intended to be used that way. There's an intended use statement which says that they must be the primary alarm. And we need the medical device manufacturers to sort of, you know, get moving in changing the intended use statements of their medical devices because they have the power to do this, to, to make sure that those protocols work, to test them, and then to, to make the intended use. We intend this device to be used as part of a distributed alarm system. And what we really need in the technology sector is for the, um, for the customers, for the hospitals, to push the device manufacturers to do this. Sure. Because it's in their gift. It's not straightforward. It's going to take some work for them. But they will be able to do it. And the difference, if you can operate an ICU, with no alarms, the difference at nighttime would be enormous. Sure. And this is where the problem comes because the acoustic stress for patients, the biggest problem for patients, of course, is the disruption to sleep. But the disruption to sleep, you know, we kind of think about it and we think, oh, it's uncomfortable. But it's much, much more than that. It contributes massively to the number of cases of delirium in ICU. And at the moment, about a third of patients suffer from delirium in ICU. And it could be much higher because it's often um, not recognized. And delirium comes with, with serious side effects. 
um, both during the stay in ICU and after. I mean, the mortality rate in the, the 12 months post-discharge of ICU is massively higher in patients who have had delirium than it is in patients who haven't. Sure. But the, and also, sorry, I was just going to add, in, in terms of the intervention of somebody that has delirium, sometimes the medic, the, they go on the medical model and prescribe mm-hmm. medication to manage the delirium, whereby yeah. the actual problem, the root cause of the problem is the sound. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's the sleep disruption and don't get me wrong. Okay. Sleep disruption is not the only, is by no means the only cause of delirium, but it's a definite contributing factor. And there are definitely patients who have suffered from delirium purely because they didn't get enough sleep. The sleep disruption also does other things. And ironically, it's, it's worse in patients who are recovering, um, who are on the road to, to getting much better and, and, and leaving the ICU at those points that's when the sleep disruption becomes the biggest problem and it, it suppresses the immunity of the patient. So they start to um, slow down their recovery. Uh, and it, it increases stress, it increases heart rate. So you then have a higher risk of cardiac arrest or a stroke. Uh, so at the bare minimum, what you end up with is patients spending more time in ICU than they should. And this is two, three, four, five days longer than they should. Yeah. Um, and at worst, you've got patients who are at serious risk of, of physical harm. None of those things are good. So we really do need to address this problem. It's not something that you can just say, oh, yeah, well, we, it's just the environment. We just have to deal with it because it's causing physical harm. Sure. And I'll be, I'll be keen to take a look at uh, the typical um, patient safety element to the audio levels. Take a look at the hazard log that some of these manufacturers have to produce under the DCB 00160 or 29. I'm taking a look at how they're managing those risk factors because, again, risk can never be fully eradicated, but what you have to be able to demonstrate is how are you mitigating risks to patient care, to patients yep. have been, being harmed. And audio levels is one whereby, yes, you might, as a manufacturer, stipulate that you are the primary device for sending the audio alert, but even through that, you have to also demonstrate how you're trying to mitigate even the older levels affecting not only the patient, but also the staff that are in the, that environment. And obviously yeah. there has to be pay, um, research done in terms of the prolonged exposure to, mm. to, to, to the decibel levels that your um, users are being subjected to. For example, a smoke alarm. There's a lot of research in terms of the level a smoke alarm is set to, and it's set so, so high. The threshold is much higher because obviously it's a, a, an immediate life-threatening situation. Yeah. Although many yeah. people in their homes will work through <laughs> a smoke alarm yeah. because yeah. they get so get used to it, as you was talking about. You kind of get used to it. I know yeah. that's that's due to me burning the toast. Yeah. And because you know it's you burn yeah. the toast, you either work for it or you try and yeah. just fan the flames, but... Either way, yeah, the those... immediate assumption is not there's a fire. The yeah, immediate exactly. assumption is, yeah, somebody's burnt the toast or the, or the grill's been on too long or, or, or whatever, right? That's always the immediate assumption, even though it's a super critical alarm. Yes. And that, that's, that's one of the funny things about, about alarms is <laughs> the, the immediate assumption often tends to be it's not what the alarm is actually for. Yeah. It's, it's a false positive. Exactly. Which, which is worrying. Exactly. And, and, and again, humans, but, isn't it? yes, humans. And again, another example for the, from the ICU, I remember being called for, um, along with a crash team to ICU um, and it was myself, two other consultants. However, there were too many consultants to deal with the issue. Mm. 
And that again goes back to what you're talking about, being able to prioritize, be able to target your messages yeah. because this was the days of just the, the uh, medical bleep. So whoever, yeah. whoever's a responder has to go. So what happens when you've got two or three simultaneous events occurring, you yeah. could have three people in one environment and two patients effectively not receiving any care until yeah. there's a conversation that's taken place. Why are you here? Why are you here? Oh, you're the best person to, to resolve this issue. And then, you know, every second counts yeah. within an A&E ICU environment. So the, the ability to um, be able to target your messages, get the right people to deliver the right care in the right way and also exactly. have this accountability. And it's got to be clear, right? I mean, I remember I was at a meeting with... Um, uh, a matron on critical care in St. George's Hospital, um, which, as you know, is is one Very of the well. four major trauma centres in yes. in London, right? So he was he was carrying uh, one of the major trauma bleeps at the time, and the major trauma call came in, and uh, you know, off went his bleep, and um, you know, off he goes to, uh, to ED, and he said, "Oh, you know, just come with me." So off we went down to ED. Um, and it's quite a long way from cardiothoracic ICU to, to ED in George's anyway. We, we, we plod along down there as quick as we can. And like 50 people have turned up. Yeah. You know, because everybody's got a major trauma bleep. Everybody's on that team has got a major trauma bleep. It, it's not defined by what type of major trauma it is. So this major trauma had nothing to do with a chest injury. So the cardiothoracic matron is absolutely not needed. You know, and you know, the, the coordinator basically just goes, okay, I need you, 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 and you. Everybody else go off. And loads of people just disperse back to wherever in the hospital yeah. they've been. And he said to me on our way back to the ICU, he said, if you can solve that problem for me, I know, you know, that, that would be magic. And we can, you know, because what you can do is you use some software instead of just picking up a phone and dialing the major trauma bleep and everybody just gets a bleep you put some software in which says what type of trauma it is and you pick it from a list and that has a predefined list of responders. And then you can see as the coordinator when these people have responded because they get it on a smartphone and they say, yes, I'm coming. And then if, you know, if you need one cardiothoracic uh, band seven nurse, for instance, and two of them have got the message, as soon as one of them accepts, the other one gets a message saying stand down. So you get who you need when you need them but you don't drag everybody else all over the hospital. Yeah. And you've got yeah. that accountability there, yeah, which is the most and, and, important yeah. thing. And the coordinator can see immediately who's coming. Yes, that person. Exactly. Yes, that person. And you have a backup behind it. So if somebody for some reason hasn't accepted, there's a loop that escalates to other people. You know, it's not just one fire and forget message and hope everybody signs up. And yeah. then you say, what happens when people don't turn up? And they say, well, they always do. Until they don't. Yeah, until they don't. Until they don't. And that's that's the issue. Yeah. And this is frighteningly obvious when you do a serious untoward investigation within a hospital for a failing in mm. responding to a trauma or a med- um, emergency bleep going off. Typically, the clinician will say, I didn't receive the message. Yeah. Um, and this allows organisations to quite clearly see, okay, you received the message at this time. There, there's a confirmation that you've accepted it or didn't accept yeah. it. And we can estimate how long it would have take, taken you to reach the ICU unit. How yeah. come you didn't do that? And these are the sort of questions that anyone that's um, been witness to or being a patient would expect. 
anyone that has been the victim of poor care would expect an investigation to be able to come up with some of these answers yeah. in a quicker period of time, opposed to the, having this ambiguity in terms of, well, there were, the message was sent out, but there's, there's now a Bermuda Triangle <laughs> event. It's a black hole we can't see. You know, can't see. It's, it's gone into the ether. Yeah. And have people got it? Have they not? I don't know. You know, and, exactly. and this is a perennial problem with, with, with paging as a method of communication in any sense, whether it's an emergency page or not. But if I was an ICU nurse and I needed, I needed to talk to the consultant or I needed a specialist review or something, and I don't have that person on the ward with me, then under the current general communication structures, I would send a bleep to that person. And then what do I do? Right? Because the only way they're going to come back to me is by phone. So the phone is at the nurse's station. My patient is over there, but I'm worried about my patient. Do I go and stay with my patient yeah. or do I wait by the phone? I have no idea how long it's going to take this person to call me back if they call me back. I'm worried about my patient, but I don't want to miss the call. And it's just, yeah, it's just, you know, you, you paint, mad. you paint such a vivid um, picture. I can, I can see it. I can literally see it then. And what does, what does that mean to the clinician that that's caught between a rock and a hard place? How are they feeling? What are their um, energy levels like in terms of the stress and the, the confusion? And so when they do make a decision, it's a, sometimes it could be an impaired decision just because of the, the, the friction that they've been having the conflict yeah. they're having all the time. And we don't need that within health space at the moment because there's a acuity in terms of resources. We don't have yeah. enough resources anyway. So it's very, very important that hospitals take a look at the technology in terms of uh, modernising the approach to, to beeps. I would like a time whereby an ICU unit is um, beepless. I would, because yeah. again, as uh, you're yeah. talking uh, about it, it's it kind of like the given. It needs to be. And, and uh, you know, I mean, all of this stuff is feasible and it's feasible through, you know, less complicated projects than full clinical information systems. You know, we, we're talking about we're talking about, uh, you know, a robust communication infrastructure with, with mobile devices that have the ability to do secure instant messaging as well as voice communication and also integrating with medical devices so you get alarms to these devices but also visibility of parameters and we talked um, in my last chat with you about the importance of freeing up thinking time for clinicians this is another thing about medical device integration in that consultants uh, icu consultants often have to cover ed as you know so they might get called down to the emergency department to do a consultation on whether a patient is going to be admitted to icu or not or you know severity so they're often off the unit now, let's say again, I'm, a, I'm an ICU nurse and I want the consultant to take a look at something. I've, I've got some worrying parameters going on on a patient's medical device. Um, so I don't have to bleep because I've got a mobile device and I know the consultant's got a mobile device and I can call them directly or, or message them either way about the patient in a centered way around the patient. And I can say, I need you to take a look at this patient. Right? There's some funny things going on. The consultant then can look on their mobile device at the live parameters coming out of the medical device, at the history of an alerts and events, even look at potentially live waveforms and things like that. And they can decide, do I need to get back up to the unit? Can I just talk the nurse through some actions now? Um, uh, or, or can I stay here in ED and, and I know that it's going to be okay in a few minutes? 
even if they have to go back to the unit because they think it's, it, you know, it's, it's quite serious, in the time it's taking them to walk to the unit, they can be thinking about the condition because they know what it is because they've seen the data already. Exactly. So that travel time is, is doubling up as thinking time. Instead of just, I've got a bleep to go back up to the unit, I've got something serious down here. I don't know which one's more exactly. serious. You know, exactly. But I'm going to go anyway, right? So off I go and, and that travel time's wasted. Yeah. And it's, and These things are doable. It's doable. And what you're saying is it's such a simple thing, but again, the implement, implementation could be a challenge. The thinking mm-hmm. time is brilliant if it is structured. And that's what you're talking about, creating an environment whereby the thinking time is not panic time thinking. Yeah. You run in yeah. between awards. Uh, some of these corridors you talk about St. George's, I know that that those corridors very, very well. I trained in St. George's. And yeah. when you're running or walking fast, should I say, health and safety, walking very fast, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're panicking. You're not thinking yeah. any structured yeah. way at all. Then you're presented with the scenario when you get there. Then you start thinking, this is what you're going to do. But you had all that time to prepare yourself. And maybe that preparation time could mean that you arrive with the right equipment. If you particularly the specialist equipment, sometimes you might need, you could go and get that and be there ready and prepared. Exactly. Yeah. You can pick it up on the way, or you can speak to somebody to say, I need you to get that piece of equipment to that bed. And I'm going to meet you there. Cause this is the point is at the time you become aware of something, if you've got, more information about it. If you've got live clinical data, if you've got, you know, uh, a communication, a conversation with the nurse who's at the bedside, all these kinds of things build a picture for you that you can think about, that you can base decisions on. If all you've got is there's an emergency at bed one. What does that mean? That does not help (laughs) you until you get to bed one and you go, okay, the emergency is this. Therefore, my decisions are going to be that. But no, as you said, quite rightly, these start to become panic decisions and potentially impaired decisions because you know you've lost however many minutes it's taken you to get there. Sure. And I was going and to that's s- problematic. I was going to ask you again in terms of what are your views in terms of the like TV programs? I'm not going to mention any, maybe Holby City or anything like that, <laughs> that show ICU units as being very loud. Um, in terms of, do you think that that also encourages or supports the expectation for um, people at home that if they're in the environment, mm. that is just the sound that you're supposed to have? Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point, actually, because that, that talks to, uh, you know, our pathologies as humans of how we how we create the world around us, isn't it? Because I guess from the t- from the... TV shows side, there's there's a desire to be authentic. There's a desire to to not make it this kind of sterile, silent environment with with you know like quiet little beeps, yeah, beeps, yeah. beeps going on instead of what you actually have, right? So they want to be authentic to to the real environment, so that you know doctors and nurses watching the show don't go, "That's absolute nonsense. That's nothing like it." But equally, as you say, it kind of um, it validates the current situation. It says that's how it is, and it kind of says that's how it should. That's how it's going to stay. It's okay that that's how it is because these guys know how to deal with that environment, and yeah, they do. But why should they? You know, wh- why do doctors and nurses have to work in this this incredibly stressful, um, pressured environment in terms of the sound and and the the inability to consume information properly? I mean, I, I, I've had times where, you know, if I've been working from home and, and 
my son, you know, he's four years old. He's been stuck at home for months and he just wants to play. So he's running around and shouting and screaming. I'm trying to read something complicated that I'm going to base some decisions on. And I have to read it six or seven times. And I still don't quite get it at the end because it's constantly disrupted. Yeah, exactly. It's not a clean narrative. It's like, I've got to break here. No, sorry, Leo, I can't play now. All of this stuff, right? And I, I don't think it's any different for anybody. If you're trying to consume a, a complicated piece of information with acoustic stress around you, it's very hard. And if you're going to then base life and death decisions on it, then you know we ought to do something about the acoustic stress. That's, that's an excellent, excellent example. If I can add to that, if you're talking in the context of a mental health patient, typically somebody that hears auditory hallucinations and the best way for you to try to grasp what they're going through is if you can imagine somebody's talking to you from either side of you, one person in in one ear shouting, you're a bad person, you're the devil, you'll never accomplish anything then somebody on the other side is trying to counter that then you are in the middle trying to read a a a very important document yeah it's very very frightening it's very um, disorientating and so when someone has that sort of um challenge in their lives to be in an icu that then throws beeps (laughs) all over the place we are actually exacerbating the um the the symptoms that they're experiencing they're exacerbating it and typically what tends yeah. to happen is we go on the medical model that patient would then be given some sort of medication to calm yeah. them down yeah yeah sedation right i mean you see where the environment i'm so keen to talk about environmental factors that are beep related people related and practice related because some of these things just understanding that patients also as we talked about now in terms of TV, the expectations of the patient, they know if they're in ICU, they're going to hear beeps. Yeah. And I think everybody around the world who's watched any program around a hospital environment knows the sound of a life support machine. Yeah. They know. And I remember the very early days when I qualified speaking to a patient, again, actually happened to be in St. George's. <laughs> Just happens to be in St. George's. Could have been in any hospital. Yeah. But they told me, how many patients flatlined? And he was like yeah. saying to me, get me out of this place. Get yeah. me out of this place. It was an elderly, um, older person, you know, um, complicated, was well, complicated physiology and mental health problems. Had, had combination factors there and he had um, COPD as well. But the way he was placed, he could hear life support machines and he knows yeah. the flatlining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a re- that is a really interesting point. And I said earlier, you know, that the other patients don't care about the alarms they hear from from the other patients. But actually, that's not true. Um, so I'll, I'll change that statement. They they do care. They get scared by it. Yeah. Um, you know, if you can if you can isolate patients from the noise of other patients' medical devices, it goes a long way to keeping them calm. Because look, patients in ICU are very sick. And, and fundamentally, a high proportion of them don't make it to the end of the journey in ICU because they are very sick. And ICU is all about life support, and sometimes it doesn't work. And if you have a reasonable stay in ICU, there's a pretty good chance you're going to hear somebody flatline, yeah. as you say, and not come back from it. And that must be terrifying. 
that must be terrifying for these people. I mean, I've never spent time as a patient on ICU touch wood. Um, but I can imagine how hard it is for people and how scary it is for people. And, and so it's not just the stress of, I can't sleep and oh God, it's so loud. And I'm trying to read a book or, or whatever. Cause most of them, you know, aren't well enough to read a book anyway, but it's, it's the fear. Yeah. I hear that go off on the bed next to me. What is that? Am I next? Yeah. You know, is, is, is the Reaper making his rounds? It, it, it must be terrifying. And it, again, this, this is, this is stuff that we have solutions for you. The, the recommendations in a lot of these studies about the noise levels in ICU, the number one recommendation is reduce the noise from medical devices, um, operate them in quiet mode with, with, with um, alarms going to mobile devices, which will on vibrate. That's all one and good. It's a fantastic recommendation. But at the moment, the way the medical devices are and the intended use statements are, clinically, you shouldn't be doing that. Because if you do, you're going against the recommended use statement. And if something happens to the patient, mm. you're culpable. So nobody's doing it until the medical device is supported. Mm, but interesting. It's interesting. got to be done. It, the yeah. technology, as I say, from the integrators, from our side, it's there. We're ready. You know. Sure. I, I guess there's the expectation for the health consumer, which is all of us, mm. raises the conscious level to have that conversation, looking at a better way of doing things or delivering care. And I think this is one of the, the, um, the themes that will, that will merge the quality of care. You know, are you getting enough recuperation? You know, we know that sleep is very, very important, particularly pre-op that the the, the patient is as as relaxed and as rested uh, sufficiently. We know about delayed transfer of care, delayed discharges. We know all of that in terms of the financial implications to hospital and also the impact it has on allowing other patients to come in to receive care. So it's what are we doing at the point of care to empower, to ensure that the patient gets the right level of care and then obviously get the better health care outcomes. You know, so this is a subject that I've very much enjoyed breaking down the audio levels. And we'd be keen for you guys out there who are into um, health or just uh, as a health consumer, what have you observed in around a hospital in terms of noise level? Have you tried yourself to decipher what that beep is, which I have sometimes, because there's so many different types of beeps. You know, yeah. sometimes you misinterpret a beep to be a certain type of machine and it's not that machine. And where is the beep yeah. coming from? I've lost yeah. mobile phones so many times. I think most of us have lost mobile phones. And then you yeah. try to call it. And have you noticed sometimes it could be ringing right next to you and you go to the next room. <laughs> chasing it around the house. Oh, yeah, how's that noise coming Yeah, from? but you're sitting on it. We've all been there when you can't sleep because there's a car alarm going off outside. Yeah. But you can't, you can't discern where it's coming from. No idea. Can't which direction. Which one of my neighbours is doing that, right? No the one I... the bash down. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you, you can't work it out. All you know is it's there and it's driving you crazy. Correct. And you can't sleep. Correct. Yeah. And another example is you're driving windows up or down. It just doesn't matter, really. Or the quality of car that you're driving. And you're hearing an alarm going off, like a yeah, siren. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that yeah, a police... Or ambulance, yeah. Yeah? yeah. And which and direction, direction is, coming is it from? coming from? Exactly. Me or is it? Do I have to yeah. move? Am I driving? Am I the one holding up <laughs> traffic? Yeah. You know, and that's so disorientating because you're concentrating on what's coming forward, but now you're now thinking three sixty degrees and yeah. trying to discern. Yeah. You know, it's so that can give people at home 
a flavor of what it's like when you've got all these sounds going and you, you need to decipher where they are, which bed is it coming from. Sometimes you don't get the visual cue. Sometimes the visual cue is, is blocked by another piece of medical apparatus. So you cannot yeah. see the beep, the, um, the flashing yeah. lights because of another device in front of it. Because obviously when we deliver care, there's, it's not, it's like a battlefield. That's the best way to, to describe. There's a lot going on. Everybody who's working in that environment has to prioritize their own tasks because they're held accountable for the deli- for the delivery of their own tasks. So they're all managing yeah. their own individual tasks and they cannot manage someone else's task. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And you talk about the visibility of the devices at the bedside. I mean, you know, I see you, and I know, I know, I see you, and uh, you know. But but for people who don't, an ICU bed is insanely busy with technology. Okay, you've got a pulmonary ventilator, you've got a patient monitor, you've got a rack of infusion pumps. Sometimes you've got a PC on an articulated arm to to access clinical systems. You know, you've got uh, a a box of disposables, you've got all sorts of stuff. There's everything there. So much stuff. And it's very easy because a lot of the things are on articulated arms. It's very easy for something to be blocking the, the, the view of something else. And if all you're hearing is a beep and you can't see the alarm, on the medical device, you can't see the waveform or whatever. It's tough. It's, it's not so straightforward. And then come to the point where another of the recommendations about noise is that new ICUs should all be built single occupancy, um, not just for noise, for infection control, for all sorts of other things, for dignity. Mm. But that brings a whole new level of complexity in that, okay, do you leave a nurse in the room all the time? Um, if you don't, then how do you hear the alarms? Oh, you leave the door open. Okay, if you leave the door open, what's the point of single occupancy rooms? Because it's not doing anything for infection control. (laughs) So uh, this comes again to the point of mobilizing alarms and and, and making it clear where they're coming from. Because if you leave a patient in a room on their own and and just box them in with their mobile devices, then you're just creating an echo chamber for that noise. And it will just get louder and louder and louder inside their heads. So... Um, you wow. know, some solutions come with their own problems, right? Exactly. And, and, and again, in terms of the user experience, the patient's experience, um, being in a room with all that equipment, earplugs are not mandated to give to patients in ICU dip, um, units. They're, mm. they're, they're having that constantly. The clinicians are going in and out. They're, they're mobile. They're moving. They have some sort of respite from it, yep. whether that's a good thing or a negative thing. I don't know. But the patient's are subjected to that yeah. noise throughout their care episode and more yeah. work needs Which to be done. Which can be a long time. Yes, it know. can be. Yeah, exactly. It can be it can a be very weeks. long time. Yeah, it could be weeks. And I, and I know some patients have report, um, reported having tetanus um, out of their own experience. It's constant beeping that yeah. they have um, post, post-treatment. And so we've now introduced another medical condition. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I, you know, it's it's incredible. I remember I went on a, a site visit to a hospital in Rome, um, the, the biggest hospital in, in Rome, Ospedale Gemelli. Um, and I was talking to one of the ICU consultants over there. Uh, we, were just, we were talking about the volume of, of patient records generally, okay? Um, really what we were talking about in my last call, call with you. But he mentioned a patient that they had just discharged a couple of weeks before and she'd been in for 13 months in the ICU. Wow. And can you imagine the torture? You know, it's inhuman. 13 months subjected to that that kind oh. of level of noise. And it's, you know, 
it's it's not intentional torture. They kept her alive and they got her out alive, you know, and and, and well enough to go home. But man, I, I can only imagine how many additional months these months she stayed in there because of the 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 suppressed immune system, the yeah. the delayed recovery that comes from all of this pressure, which is is resolvable, honestly. Ian, you you dropped some gems again in terms of stimulating um, our, our thoughts in around solutionizing and understanding the severity of these beeps. They're not just beeps and taken for granted. Next time we're watching these, these, these programs that depict these scenes, we should be a bit more um, aware of the effects it has on the people that have to work in those environments and the patients that have to be subjected to those beeps. So, I really, really thank you for taking the time out of your Sunday to share those with me. And I look it's forward... It's always a pleasure, Douglas. <laughs> good, good, good. And I look forward to breaking some more, uh, shall we call it myth-busting? Do some yeah. more myth-busting in terms of health technology, transformation, and what can we do um, to stimulate that discussion? Okay, so Ian, yeah. thank you very much. And we Absolute catch up on pleasure, the other side. Douglas. Fantastic. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out micdropclub.com and get the show notes and useful links. Subscribe to the podcast. Don't just live life, make life boom.